We are so passionate at Southwest Church that we believe that our purpose is to make disciples. And we will admit, especially in large churches, that our culture likes to take good communicators, good musicians, I mean, as dumb as this sounds, good events in a church and change Christianity into a spectator sport. Well, we are in the first part of a four-part series to start the entire first half of our year squared, centered, and anchored in our purpose, which is that we love discipleship. And we're going to slowly walk through four significant steps that every person needs to take to become a disciple. And the first step is planted. And it's so easy in our culture to dismiss the idea of being planted in the gospel as a one-time event. This one time at camp or this one time at a rally or this one time at a retreat. I did that. I checked that box. And then months, years later, it's easy for us to wonder why our lives don't feel or look very much different than they did before that moment. And so we're spending a lot of time in the concept of being planted in the gospel, our initial response to the call of Jesus in our life, before we ever get to being rooted or growing or going to make disciples ourselves. And today's story illustrates very well why we want to slow down and anchor ourselves in this, because we believe that this story calls us to be planted in the right place. There are three different illustrations that we'll work through today. We're going to talk about the old story of Icarus. We're going to talk about the new, fresh idea of four-year-olds playing soccer. And then we'll talk about maybe some tension that I saw in a park one holiday weekend. But let's start with Icarus. Um, in the old world, they would create stories not just to entertain, but to teach. Um, the story of Icarus is one of those examples. Icarus and his dad were in captivity, in prison, in a pit. They were stuck somewhere. And the father decided that he would hatch a plan and some behavior that would free them. Somehow he wound up with wax on a regular basis from candles. And he would wait for birds to fly in and out of the prison or the pit or the cave, wherever it was that they're stuck, depending on the version of this ancient story you've heard. And over time, that father... Um, would carefully fashion loose feathers and the wax into wings on the arms of his son and the arms of himself. And then they were going to free out of this pit, out of this prison, out of this cave, off of this island, wherever it was they were stuck in your version of the story, and they would fly back to safety. Well, the father is one of two principal characters in a story to teach us something good. And his son, Icarus, Icarus was in the story to teach us something as well. As the father gets ready to leave, they've got enough wax and feathers for all four of their arms combined to fly away. He tells his son one warning. As we leave, your first taste of freedom can't draw you too close to the sun. Because son, if you are enamored with your ability to fly, the closer you get to the sun the more your wax will melt. And if your wax melts, your feathers fall. And if your feathers fall, so do you. And the son hears the lesson. And he's like, dad, dad, I get it. Let's go. Let's get to freedom. And the story moves on that they launch themselves to freedom and they're flying and it's working. And this father's diligence and his care and his uh, caution, his preparation, all of these good qualities, all of these positive behaviors 
have worked. They're free. And the one warning on the son's life starts to become pulled into question. He actually looks up and he sees the sun and he wonders how high he can fly. And he starts to climb and climb. And as he climbs, the wax melts. And as it does, he falls to his death. Story is super simple. One father who demonstrates the character traits that the culture wants to celebrate provides freedom for himself and others. And the son, the only thing we learn about him is that in his arrogance and selfishness, loses the life that was saved for him. Story that is obvious because the culture of the day already thought those things. The story just reinforced it. The story that we're in today, I'm not so sure is easy to latch onto because it doesn't reflect the values that our culture has set. Let's just jump into the story and I'll explain more specifically what I mean. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 and following. Verse 38 says this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about so many things, but the one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Okay, so new story, three characters. We've got Mary, Martha, and then Jesus sits between them both. The very little things we learn about Martha, super simple, is that she welcomed them into her home, that she was distracted, and that she was busy serving. That's it. So all the things we learned about Icarus's father in jail, very little things. All the things we learned about Icarus, very little things. Same thing is true here about Martha. She welcomed him into her home. She was distracted and serving. And that's it. Mary, we know even less about her. The only two things it, the Bible tells us about what she did is that she was sitting and she was listening. And so you've got someone in this house who is busy cleaning, prepping food, welcoming people, sharing the Wi-Fi password, getting chairs set out like, oh, shoot, we got company. We got to get things ready for them. And then the other person's just like, oh, wow, we got a celebrity in the house. I'm just going to stand you like all day long, like do nothing. It, it, and this story doesn't make a ton of sense in our culture because of what happens at the end when Jesus identifies one person in the story as acting wisely and the other person as messing it up. Well, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. The only things we know about Mary and Martha we've got set out and then there's one line of dialogue in this whole screenplay and it's this. Martha speaks up and she says, um, Jesus, can you please tell that girl who's out there sitting and doing nothing to get in the kitchen and help me. Can you tell her to get in the spare room and pull more chairs out? Can you tell her to pull some plates out? Can you tell her to do something, please? And then Jesus is introduced as the arbiter of the story. Jesus looks at Martha and he says, Martha, here's what I see in you, that you're anxious and you're troubled. And, and I don't know if the word anxiety speaks to how you feel right now. And I don't know if distracted, overwhelmed, exhausted speaks to you or not. But Jesus looks maybe into the kitchen of the house he's in. 
And Martha's just angry. She's frustrated. She's at her wit's end. She's burnt out. And even though it feels to her like she's doing the responsible thing, Jesus looks at her adjective and labels her anxious and distracted and troubled. And then he looks at this other lady, Mary, who's literally sitting in the living room. And the words that he uses for her is that she's chosen the only thing that's necessary in life. She's chosen a portion of life that is good. And then he actually adds one last phrase. The thing that Mary has chosen, she can keep forever. Jesus weighs in. Martha is so anxious and busy and troubled and distracted. And ironically, she looks over at Mary, who's got contentment, peace, joy, purpose, and meaning. And all of her anxiety is frustrated by Mary. And she says, Mary, you've got to join me over here. I'm frustrated. You should be too. And Mary sits there and she thinks, should I leave what I'm doing and go to that? And Jesus identifies all of this as a mess. And he identifies all of this as the only thing that matters. And that's it. That's the whole lesson. Mary, we should learn from in a positive way. Martha, we should learn from in a negative way. Two lessons. Do you remember Icarus? Two lessons. Same exact concept. But I think our culture doesn't latch onto this story so well because we celebrate people who are busy. We celebrate people who are so overworked that, yeah, they're kind of stressed out a little bit, but it just keeps us addicted to like our Starbucks and our uppers and our downers, whatever it is, salt, fat, sugar. And we celebrate a culture that is so preoccupied, so distracted, so overworked that we just accept anxiety as the fruit of a culture that produces. And people that sit, people that wait, People that listen, those aren't high achievers. They get left by the wayside. They don't get clicks on the gram. They don't get followers on the Twitter. They get left behind. Let's talk about it from an entirely different angle. Um, I've mentioned this before. I really do feel like a lot of life's lessons I learned coaching four-year-old soccer. If you've never coached or watched four-year-old soccer, it is the best thing in the entire world. And uh, little kids playing soccer is is funny because it's almost like a facsimile of soccer. It's like if you took a really great picture of soccer and then you ran it through a 1989 copier or, or if you faxed it to Bolivia and then like pulled out that picture, that's what little kids soccer is. It's really not that great. And I'll explain why. The game starts and the kid closest to the ball runs to it and that's where soccer ends. Because at that point, that little kid default instinctively starts to think everything around me is going to try and take this ball from me. And I don't want that to happen. So that kid will start running in a direction with that ball that makes no sense to the game of soccer, but instinctively makes sense to them. If there are other kids in front of the goal, they will not run towards the goal. They will run away from those kids. They will run towards their own goal if they feel safe running towards it, if they can keep the ball. If there are kids behind them at their own goal, they will run straight for the sideline with that ball. A young child in possession of the ball will run away from anyone they believe threatens their possession of the ball. And that's the game. Well, as a coach, you begin to hope to teach them that soccer actually has a different purpose. And I'm telling you this, every season, every year, there's one kid 
in every level that learns the purpose of soccer first. And they look like Pele. They look like Alex Morgan. They look like a superhero. And this is the only lesson that they've got to learn. That the goal of soccer is to make a goal. And when a kid learns that when they've got possession of the ball and they run towards the goal, they look like Einstein in a kindergarten classroom. They're an absolute genius. And that parent is so proud that they think their kid is more athletic and stronger, faster, smart. All they've learned is that the ball is supposed to go to the goal. The whole game changes. For them, the game becomes crystal clear. And on the field, they become a leader. The American church has a lot of Christians. It's almost like we took a picture of Christianity and faxed it to ourselves. And the game a lot of us are playing isn't actually the calling of Christ on our lives. It's like we're all wearing soccer uniforms and we're all on a soccer field, but it really looks to me like a lot of American Christians have no idea what the goal of this calling is. And they're instinctively running towards something that makes them feel like their ball won't be taken from them. A lot of us are running towards politics right now, aren't we? But there's a lot more than that that distracts us. And it feels important and it feels purposeful. And it feels like we want to call other believers who've actually sat at the feet of Jesus and have chosen to listen to him that they're sellouts, they're cultural sellouts, and they're lazy. And they're not doing everything in this culture that they need to to do. And with anger, with exhaustion, with frustration, they're playing the game the wrong way. There is so much more than we're distracting ourselves with. And it's killing us with anxiety. It's killing us. We look like a team, but we're not playing like it at all. And those among us who learn first what the point of our calling is, will be leaders in a culture that's killing itself. The point, if the point of all of this is not Jesus, you don't have the first step down. To be planted in the gospel is to be preoccupied with the person of Jesus. Over the next few months, we're going to call you to be planted in the gospel so that you can lay roots. And when you lay roots, things don't pull you out of place anymore. And once any plant has laid roots, it just begins to grow. It just does. You'll be a person who has more wisdom for situations than you've ever had before. You'll be a person with conviction that can steer you through decisions that you've been confused by before. And after you've grown for a period of time, you are so convinced, not just of the concept of God, not just the idea of God, but that the presence, the mind, the heart, the will of God is moving in your life right now. Not once upon a time at a single event that you are overwhelmed with the idea that God can use your life to grow others and you'll get going to make disciples. The pathway is everything. But if you just keep watching a preacher with conviction, you picked a church that does a good job with graphics and music, you will be wildly empty and you'll just hoard the ball to yourself, wondering what the point of all of this is. You've got to get planted, rooted, growing and going. Consider it from a biblical lens. John chapter 12, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. It just stays a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Tim, how is this possibly connected to Mary and Martha? 
will marry his chosen to die to herself and just sit in front of Jesus. Martha brought Jesus into her home and then got busy with her life. Cool, Jesus is in the house. I'm gonna do my thing. This, This verse is just an agricultural truth. You never worry about losing a seed if you're a farmer if that seed goes in the ground. If the seed goes in the ground, you're like, oh, phew, that's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Because TBH, I don't want a basket full of seeds. I want a field full of crops. And the reason I want a field full of crops is because I want crops full of fruit. I want food to live on so that I can provide for my family and others. Because you're older and you're smarter than plants, good for you. You know that if a seed disappears into the soil, it actually becomes something more. And that's the point. You've never been worried about losing a seed into the ground. We love the idea that Jesus will make us more, that will bear much fruit. It's one of what John Mark Comer calls four core gospels in our culture. And this, this, this gospel version speaks all the blessings of which the Bible has into our lives. This gospel is popular with many wealthy people that Jesus will bless, that God will bless. And this is true. Jesus does bless, but you can't skip the first part unless a seed falls in the ground and dies. Do you want to tag Jesus on your life like a NASCAR sponsor and then get yourself back out on the track? That's not the call. You aren't growing roots if your life isn't planted. You aren't growing if your life isn't planted. You don't bear fruit. You aren't a leader. You wonder where this life is going if you have not fallen into the ground of Jesus' gospel and given yourself to it, if you're not planted. One last illustration, and we'll close our time. Um, You've got to understand, I'm about to share a story that demonstrates a tension point in culture. And as I talk through the story, you're going to wonder, well, what side do you land on, Tim? Whose side do you take in this story? You got to understand, I'm a dad of four kids. I got boys and girls. We've got like birth children and adopted kids. There's lots of different ways you could divide up my family. But watch this. When you put them all in my minivan and I'm driving down the road with my wife sitting in the captain's chair, Beyonce fan blowing her her back, this is my kingdom. This is my family. And admittedly, seven minutes into any van ride, two of those kids will have a disagreement and they will begin to argue. Do you know what I don't do when that happens in my family? Choose one of their sides and reject the other forever because that's my family. And I try and peace make in my family. I don't fight with the weapons of this world and I don't have the mind of men when I look at the divisions in my country. I have a heart that God has a heart for my world and that he loves them all. So I love everybody in this story. Now, here's the story. I was on a ride along one night with one of my law enforcement friends. He's a sergeant. And he responded to a call at a park. It was a holiday weekend and some people had not enough blood in their alcohol stream. No, reverse that. You know what I mean. And there was a shooting at this park. No one was hit, but there was an ex-girlfriend and there was a new girlfriend and there was a dude in the middle and ex-girlfriend shows up looking tough. Pop, 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 pop. Seven rounds, I remember. We respond there. We roll up. We were the third unit on scene. Uh, Park had gone haywire, people everywhere. And as the sergeant and I get out of his unit, uh, we start walking into the park. Officers are trying to gather from the people what just happened. 
There were gunfire, but nobody's been hit. What happened? And is the craziest thing. I saw seven different police officers walking through this park, talking to people and all the people in this neighborhood, all the people in this park are shooting, excuse me, not shooting, shouting at each other. Don't tell them nothing. Don't tell them anything. And one by one, the police would get discouraged and walk to the next person and ask. And one by one, those people would say, I didn't really see it. Oh, I don't really know. And I'm watching all of this as this third party, this outsider. I'm not law enforcement and I wasn't at the park when it happened. And I just saw a neighborhood that wanted the police to show up and stop something. And then when they got there, they decided that's where it would end. That There was no coordination, no cooperation. And my heart just sank because I knew that that was so reflective of the culture that I live in that sometimes we want people to rush to the scene and do something and like, ah, actually, I just remembered, we don't trust each other. Here's my point back to Mary and Martha. Martha has Jesus step into her very home. And she's like, this is great. Jesus is popular. Jesus is smart. Jesus is important. Jesus, you stay out there. I'm gonna get back to my life and do my own thing. And Mary's out in the front room giving herself to it. At some point in your life, did you get worked up emotionally at a, a conference or a service or an event or a crusade and you invited Jesus into the front room? You, you called him to the park, but over the years, you've never chosen to sit at his feet. You've never let your life fall into his gospel and die to it. And it's been a long time and you're starting to feel pretty dried out in your walk. You don't see his purpose in the things that happen in your life. His mind is not influencing yours. His heart is not influencing yours. You're years into what could be a path of growth and discipleship, but you're still stuck in the first step. I, I just want to say this. Don't call Jesus to your life in a moment of need and then spend the rest of your life keeping him out. The lesson of Mary and Martha is this is that you can be so busy with your own decisions and calling your own shots that you are moving through the field of faith, hogging the ball to yourself. But there are some among us who are absolute leaders that have chosen to let their life die to the gospel. Today, the calling is this. Your life is a seed. It can become more or it can just stay the same. And how you handle the call to be planted will tip the difference. Would you pray with me? God, I feel the pressure of all the responsibilities in my life calling on me. And then my culture, my news, my social media, my friends, my very life demands that I have an idea and I have an identity and I have a response. And all the while, it feels like I'm in the back of the house a million miles from you, exhausted, and anxious, and it feels like I'm dying on the vine. And I watch other believers sit at your feet and possess peace and have fellowship and learn your mind and feel your heart. God, I pray that you would call this church to become planted completely in your gospel, that we would let our lives fall into the soil of your heart and mind, and that we would just simply die to you. 
and let you produce in us a life we never dreamed we could have. God, give us the good portion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. We love the fact that you've been here with us this weekend. And would you join us next weekend as we continue to talk for months at a time about how the calling of discipleship can hit your life as well. We'll see you next time.